This podcast is part of the Midwest Podcast Network. Find out more about our other shows and how to support our network at MidwestPodcastNetwork.com. Recap Podcast. My name is Alex, and I have not read Caleb Carr's The Alienist. My name is Nick, and I have now officially both read and seen Caleb Carr's The Alienist. Today we will be discussing the entire TNT series, and we'll also be discussing the book, so pause this and go catch up on the show and the book before you listen to the rest of this episode. Mm-hmm. You can find more episodes of our podcast at TheAlienist.tv, and you can send feedback to feedback at TheAlienist.tv to tell us what you think of our podcast. After today, there likely won't be any more episodes of the Alienist recap unless a new adaptation happens or they decide to turn the book's sequel, The Angel of Darkness, into a series. Mm-hmm. Fingers crossed. But in the meantime, you can find us doing a few other shows. Uh, HBO's Westworld premieres, season two premieres on April 22nd. That gives you a week to catch up on the first season. We also have a podcast, much like the Alienist Recap for that one. It's called Westworld FM. You can go to westworld.fm to find those episodes, or you can find us on your favorite podcatcher as well. And then the week of the finale of Westworld, we have a premiere for season three of Preacher, and we will be continuing Gone to Texas at that point. So it's going to be a busy stretch of 2019 Mm -hmm. weeks or something for us. So uh, please join us in those places if you're going to miss us. If you've appreciated the show that we've been doing, if you've been listening to any of the other previous shows that we're doing, we have started something. It's a Patreon. You can go to patreon.com slash midwestpodnet. That's M-I-D-W-E-S-T-P-O-D-N-E-T. Go there and consider pledging a dollar a month or more to our podcast network. You can pledge as little as a dollar. You can do it for a month. You can do it for a few months. Do whatever you want to do. Uh... I don't know if you know this, but it takes money to produce podcasts, and we've been doing it for four years, and we have received very little compensation to do any of it. Uh, not that we're whining about it, but it is something we like doing, and in order to keep doing it, we would like to start uh, some kind of revenue stream. So, if you want to contribute to our cause, go to patreon.com slash midwestpodnet. And, uh, you know, take a look at what we got there. You can contribute a dollar a month. You can do $5 a month. You can do $10 a month. Or you can even do $50 a month if you want to do that for one month. And we will give you a little ad on our shows. So please consider giving us a little bit of your money if you've enjoyed what we've done. If you don't want to do that, uh, you can go to MidwestPodcastNetwork.com slash support. That'll give you a link where you can shop on Amazon to uh, have part of the money that you spend there. Come back to us. Or you could do, uh, you could just go into iTunes or Stitcher or wherever, leave us a rating and a review, and we would appreciate it very much because that helps other people find our fine podcasts. So, uh, yeah. Now that all that is out of the way, mm-hmm. Nick, we're about two weeks out from the uh, the finale of The Alienist. Much to the chagrin of some of our loyal listener base yes yes uh we apologize i was i was in boston uh for some of the previous weeks um 
for the Midwest Game Nerds podcast, one of our other fine shows on the network mm-hmm. uh, at the Penny Arcade Expo or PAX. A lesser show than this, but still good. Yes. Well, all of my children are special. <laughs> <there>. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I've been doing that. Nick's been busy with work and with the whole getting married thing that's yep. going to be happening soon. Very soon. So uh, we had to carve out a little bit of time to, to record this. But uh, now we're here. We are. And I was wondering how you felt about the show after a little bit of distance here. The finale and the show as a whole, you know, what did you think of it as a show itself? What did you think of it as an adaptation of the book? Uh, Any any kind of big looming thoughts that you had about? Well, uh, you know, I should have probably thought more in depth as to specifics. (laughs) I've just kind of been doing really general. like, Oh, these are I liked this. I didn't like that. Uh, As a show, I think it's a cool show. I think it has a lot to offer a person who hasn't to a person who hasn't read the book. I think there's there is a lot to latch onto and sink your teeth into. But I think that if I weren't already privy to who most of the people in this are i would probably feel a little disoriented a lot of the time Uh, i think one thing that's very commendable about the show is it doesn't necessarily spell everything out for you there's a lot to just be inferred from character interactions and set dressing and wardrobe and that sort of thing you can learn a lot about the people just by watching them not necessarily listening to them which is a characteristic that I think is going by the wayside in a lot of uh, movies and show TV. don't tell. Yes, exactly. And uh, a little bit of tell is fine. Hell, a lot of tell is fine as long as it's done skillfully. And mm-hmm. I think there's there are some very well written exchanges in this show. There's a lot of dialogue that's very cool. There's a lot of interesting subtext going on, but there is also some very shockingly poor writing in this show and things that are really confusing and just like that is what made it past the rough draft of the script. So there's there's a an inconsistency to some of it. There are some episodes that really leap out as like these are terrific and there are some where I'm like, well, that wasn't it's so hot. And <clears throat> if you're listening to this episode, you've probably been listening along all along and that's probably been pretty fairly well documented in, in the past episodes, which ones, you know, we or I liked and or didn't like. Yeah. I think that the cast is really good. I think it's very cool that if you aren't familiar with a lot of these people, which you might not be because really the biggest name is probably Luke Evans. And even then he's still not like a Tom Cruise. You know what I mean? Like American audiences would be like, Oh, that guy, I I know him. He's, he's good. And I've seen him in something. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And, and he, he kind of slips by unnoticed, but he's in so much stuff. I would almost say Dakota Fanning could even be more recognizable than him. That's true. But at the same time, time she's an adult now and i feel like we haven't seen her yeah. you know, in such a long time you used to be like oh that's that little girl from war of the world that's or, or the whatever. dakota fanning yes yeah. exactly you might think it's like a sister or something yeah but yeah sure enough people age still so <laughs> uh it's good that she has continued to find uh, such a good role mm-hmm. and i think she's fantastic in this i think the casting aside from just the quality of the actors i think it's very appropriate i think everybody fits the mold of the book really well for the most part all the principal players with the notable exception of, of Roosevelt. <laughs> I, was, I was waiting for it. But I think he was mishandled before he even had a chance. I think he, yeah. he was just misdirected and the part was underwritten. And uh, he, still a great actor, I think, could bring more to it. And perhaps he's capable of that and just didn't really understand 
you know, maybe what was required. I'm not sure how many of these people had read the book or, or did or didn't, but uh, it's a very interesting show because it is treated as an adaptation, but at the same time, watching some of the behind the scenes and stuff, uh, and then just watching the show, it feels like a lot of it is very like, this is our thing. And, you know, when to, to use the modern superhero movie culture as an example, a lot of these actors, when superhero films were first starting, like when it was the early to mid 2000s, you would always hear these people saying like, oh, I read a whole bunch of the comics to get a vibe for the character. Yeah. But you hear less of that now. And I feel like it's actors just being like, okay, I get it. Like, this is the superhero. You don't necessarily see them doing the research, so to speak, because they probably all these companies probably also have teams of people that say, here are your flashcards of who you are and just encapsulate these. And they also kind of cast to type. So like, yeah, you know, we need a, we need a wise old father figure. Who's also a God, Anthony Hopkins, <laughs> you know what I mean? And, and some, most of the time they're still good performances, but they're not that exciting. Yeah. And I feel like that some of the casting of this show is sort of rolled up in that. And I could easily see like Luke Evans, Dakota Fanning, uh, Daniel Bruhl, et cetera, being like, yeah, I, I read the script and thought it was really good and I like it and not necessarily having read the book or feeling compelled to because adaptations are becoming so the norm right now. Mm-hmm. I feel like making when something was being made uh, in you know decades prior, it was a little more special like, oh, this is an adaptation. I should read the work. And now that adaptations are just the thing, people aren't necessarily even looking to it for accuracy anymore. It's just, is it entertaining? And I, I feel that way. And I might just totally be making that up myself. Well, but I've, you used to hear people say like, oh yeah, I've, I've read the book and it's great. And this is what I loved about it. And there are some actors that are still that way. And there are some that are really, that get picked for these projects because they're really into the source material. And there was somebody I was reading about recently that like, shoot it was it was another comic book movie and i don't remember who it was but the actor whoever it was had read it and he like had in-depth knowledge like prior to being cast in the role he's like i loved this character back then and i know all about this thing and i was watching an interview and i was like oh, that's actually pretty cool it was excuse me i want to say it was carl urban talking about dread but i don't think that was it but okay. it was something like that it yeah. was somebody who was like yeah i read that when i was a teenager and i thought it was so cool and this is like a really cool role i'm really excited about it I think like on that note, I think what I'm what what I what I feel the show is missing is I think it was missing a champion. I think it was missing someone who knew things intimately and could offer the direction of That's a great This is what yeah, makes totally. this story and these people special. And I and I think ultimately the show <laughs> is worse for that. Um I don't think it's a bad show. No. I think it's good. Yeah. It doesn't feel like the boilerplate. Um, it doesn't just feel like they plucked a CSI Miami and put it in 1896 and put it on the screen. But in some ways, I kind of wonder. Oh, that sounds so awesome. 1896 Miami. I wonder if Miami. it almost would have been better. Like, <laughs> Well, yeah, not Miami. But <laughs> if it would have been better if they just kind of decided to say, all right, we have modern procedurals today. But none of them take place in 1896. And how do we take that formula and make it work that way? It doesn't feel like they approached it from that way. It feels like they approached it from we have this story, we have these characters. They made it very character heavy, which I think is good. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't quite elevate itself past any of the other detective shows that we've seen nowadays. And that's sad because I think there was an opportunity to make it. So there was an opportunity to make something incredibly special. Yeah. And I think 
it's the kind of thing where if somebody asked me like, oh, is the alienist good? I would, I would not even necessarily feel compelled to be like, yeah, my friend and I did a podcast about it. I'd be like, yeah, it's good. Watch it. If you've got the time, it's only 10 episodes. So I feel like it would come with a lot of disclaimers or like qualifiers of like, it's only 10 episodes. They're each a little under an hour. It's pretty brisk. Instead of being like, yeah, watch it. And here's why I'd be like, yeah. don't not watch it. And here's why is kind of how it, it almost feels. It's like it, 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 it doesn't feel like one that you would just wholeheartedly be like, check this out. You would be like, well, have you read the book? Do you know anything about the book? Was mm-hmm. it, in, did, does that premise interests you that kind of thing it, it's not something that you can just unquestionably offer up as like a you need to watch true detective immediately kind right of i hate going back to that but that's <laughs> that no you're 100 percent right yeah. and like i own the blu-ray of that and i will tell people like i will loan you my blu-ray yeah. to watch it like you just have to watch it's, it it's one of those things where it's like i should keep a couple spare copies of true detective on hand <laughs> so i can out. pass them out yeah they're actually people. the favors at our wedding uh, there's gonna be <laughs> A copy of True Detective season one. That's good. Yeah, That's I expensive. mean, hey. weddings are expensive. You yeah, know? you got to do what you got to do. <laughs> um, yeah, but it's it. I won't even buy the Alienist on Blu-ray, and not that I buy that much physical media anymore. Yeah. It's it's got to be something pretty special. I still do, mm-hmm. uh, and I I have a lot of I have I've already had a ton of movies. I mean, there was a point where I probably had. 650 700 movies on dvd and blu-ray yeah. and it, it is whittled down significantly partially because my brother takes them and then they, they, they become his <laughs> he also treats my my house like it's a library though it's really funny <laughs> he'll come over with a plastic bag like a kroger bag or something and he'll just like he'll go down there all in like alphabetical order rough alphabetical order and he'll just like pick them and he'll pick like seven or eight and then he watches them like over the course of like a week and a week and a half and then he'll come back and like drop them off and then like when can i get more you should make him a card I should, yeah. That'd be, he would, he would think that's hilarious. Yeah, yeah. My brother is, uh, he's got a lot more free time than me now, and he, he definitely chews through movies really quickly. Yeah, and uh, it's funny. He lives like I lived ten years ago, except he's only two years younger than me. So it's kind of funny. There's this weird time, time warp, <laughs> time lag. Yeah, exactly. Uh, in terms of an adaptation, I mean, we touched on it a little bit, but do you, how do, you, as the person who's read the book, yeah, and I, so I didn't know. My dad was watching this show until I called. Oh, really? I, yeah, I called him about some uh, something unrelated, like just before the or no, just after we recorded our finale episode, and he was like, "Yeah, I'm watching The Alienist right now," and I was like, "Oh, really? Which episode?" He's like, "Oh, the finale," and I was like, "Did you start there?" Like, <laughs> I, I had no idea, and he's like, "No, we're about we're about twelve minutes in," and I was like, "Oh, okay," and I'm like, "Well, what did you think so far?" And it's funny because he's read it, and I have his copy right now. I think yeah. I'm still unclear if I have his or not, and. uh he hadn't read it in a long time though and he he said he was he was enjoying it but i've said this before he kind of likes everything yeah it's hard for him to be like i, I didn't like that movie but he, he was he was like yeah it's good i like the cast he really liked uh laszlo mm-hmm. which i figured would be the, f- the first character he would really talk about and uh he he said he was enjoying it and he was kind of looking forward to what the finale had to hold and i was like well you're still pretty early so um, but he said overall he felt it was good he did feel it was a little he thought it was a little brisk, he said. He felt like it, it mm. blitzed past a lot of the good stuff, which I uh, obviously yeah. wholeheartedly agree. He also said he didn't like Roosevelt, and I was like, okay, so we're <laughs> confirmed. Don't need, a, don't need a DNA <laughs> test. <yes. laughs> uh, but anyway, so then I, I did catch up with him after that, and I said, what would you think of the finale? And he was like, uh, it was good, I guess. And he's like, something was bothering me, and I couldn't really put my finger on it, though. And I was like, it was Beecham, right? And he's like, yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, that was all really kind of bad. And he, he said it was really underwhelming. He said he thought Beecham was pretty... He said he couldn't remember in detail exactly how the final confrontation went down. But he yeah. was like, I know it was better than that. And I explained what happens in the book. And he was like, yep, that's... He, he remembered. And then he started, it started to come back to him. And he's like, oh, yeah. Yeah, that's so much better. And I was like, yeah, it's, it's, it's handled so well in the book. And all the, all the buildup is not for nothing. It's, it's executed so well. And so he, he even thought the... The casting wasn't great either. He goes, he just didn't look anything like the book describes him as. And he goes, and just doesn't, the casting just doesn't really make a lot of sense even. He said, I just kind of felt like it was a guy in like a shitty wig. And uh, he didn't, those are my words. It could have been played by anybody. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Stand in number five. Exactly. Yep. So we were very in in sync on that. And I haven't really asked him about too much more. I almost uh, got his like, thoughts more in depth for this the purposes of this recording but that's fine my dad my dad doesn't need a platform what uh talk about the show i guess this just popped into my head what do you think if they would have stunt casted like who out there would have been a big enough name what if they pardon me but kevin spacey and sevened it a little bit like Mm. who who could have um that's an awesome question who could have really like who would you have been pleasantly surprised to find portraying beecham you know what's interesting is like the the actors that pop up now that are exciting to me are ones that are more character actory, yeah. like stunt, real stunty stuff. Like I remember when Sherlock Holmes two, the Guy Ritchie movie, was being uh, was in pre production, and they were, the rumors were swirling Brad that Brad Pitt, Pitt was yeah. going to be Moriarty, and I like laughed and I was like, <laughs> I love Brad Pitt. I will defend Brad Pitt to the death. Like people love to poo poo on him, and I think he's a phenomenal actor. But I was like, ee. I don't know because I already hated Robert Downey Jr. as Sherlock, yeah. and I was like, "You can't get a lot more American than Brad Pitt." And I was like, "This, these should be British people." Yeah. Uh, but then they said that it was pretty much confirmed, uh, still not officially, that he is Moriarty in the first one. When you see like his hands and uh, stuff, yeah. that it was Brad Pitt because he and Guy Ritchie are buds. And I was like, "That's fine. That's kind sure. of that's cute. You it's don't cool. See his face. Yeah, at all. it's cool trivia. Whatever." But anyway. Um, that's a really cool question, and I don't know. I I'm I'm glad they went with an unknown. Like, and yeah. the guy they cast, he looks, he looks fine. Like normal pictures of him, I'm like, that's fine. Like, just make him look like that. But they just made him look, I don't know. They made him look like a wrestler or something with like that <laughs> long hair that's all lank and in his face, and you never really get yeah. a good look at him. And I'm sure that if I had thought about this question prior, I would have a better answer. It just came to me, so I couldn't I couldn't have prepared you for it or anything. But yeah, I don't. Something might pop in my head. Yeah, I, I I just feel like it would be interesting to think of like okay, even if because it's such a short, like really only that final episode is what you get with Beecham. Yeah. So I feel like the only way they can really make a lasting impression, other than smashing a cat against the wall in a sack, which that's not a good impression in my mind, but uh, would be to make it someone you know. And I wonder if that would have left things on a more intriguing or like a like a more on a sweeter note of like oh i really like that someone took the time someone i know who's big took the time out to do this yeah thankless role towards the end of the show but anyway if you think of someone if it comes to you let me know it's tough because he should be like a bit of a physical specimen. Like he's supposed yeah. to be like a guy. Who's so Terry really... Crews is what you're saying. Yeah. That, that, I heard that that's who it was going to be. Oh my God. That'd be so amazing. And then you're just wearing the red speedo from the <laughs> old spice. Stuff. Uh, yes. um, 
but the thing is he can't be old either and hollywood has a real tendency to cast men older yeah like they they go for like these guys and try to convince us that they're like in their 30s but they're like 42 yeah. and, and so my mind is naturally going to like character actors that i really like who are like older and i'm like no that doesn't make sense like he should be like in his early to mid 30s and uh he should he should be a guy who's like fit but he he should also not be like attractive he shouldn't be handsome he should be kind of ugly i the one who's coming to mind for me and it's probably just because i have westworld on the brain would be like a it's not even stunt casting at this point but it is for us would be steven Ogg, the guy who played right yeah yeah, yeah like sure. for some reason he's he's like He's built enough and also has like a unique enough face that I feel like he would yeah. leave a, a lasting impression. He'd be great impression. in the show. Yeah. He'd be phenomenal in the show. I, I think going with a with an unknown was the way to do it. Or yeah, like, Or like a lesser known. Like honestly, the guy who played Biff would have been a good Beecham too mm. uh, because he's got that kind of weird, even though he's a little more handsome than like Stephen Ogg, <laughs> he's, uh, he's got that kind of weird kind of almost prehistoric, I don't, not prehistoric, it's not the right word, but he's just got that really distinct skull shape and yeah. big strong jaw, but in a way that's a little Cro-Magnon. So anyway, that's a cool question. I actually didn't have any casting preferences going into this series. Yeah. I was along for the ride, but I can say that Daniel Bruhl is the only person who I think could have played Laszlo so well. Yeah. And uh, I think... I had always seen Vera Farmiga as uh, Sarah in my mind, but when I was reading the book and around the time I thought of that was probably in like the early 2000s and now it's like 2018 and she just, although in my mind she will look like she did in like Up in the Air or something like that or The Departed, she's 12 years older than that now. So it's just too old to play the role probably. So at least, well, I mean, judging by the fact that they went with Dakota Fanning, mm -hmm. they were looking at people who were like, 20 something right who are a lot younger yeah, yeah. younger than than john younger even. than the men <laughs> exactly but. i do wish the one character i wish that they could really because beecham ultimately although he is super important i i think that that actor was probably very capable you just need somebody who's a good actor and that's the thing like it's hard to be a movie star i think but i think you can find great actors like yeah. everywhere yeah and there's Hollywood is filled with a wealth of character actors that are that are fantastic, and and the guy would be out there. I have no doubt. I mean, when I think about like finding Christoph Waltz, who is like this diamond in the rough out there, and you know Tarantino writes this incredibly complex character for Inglorious Bastards. He's like, I need shit. I need a guy who's who's commanding, who's charismatic, <laughs> who speaks English, French, and German. Where am I going to find this guy? Oh, there he is. Like <laughs> like he was made in a lab to come be in that movie. They're out there. Like, yeah. These people are out there. So yeah. just just get it done. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I don't know. The only one I wish I could have back is Roosevelt because he's so important in the book and he's he's he doesn't have a ton of like screen time, so to speak, in the book. He's not there a ton, but he's so impactful and he, he matters so much, especially to the investigation and to the characters. Like he is the common thread yeah. that brings them all together. And in the show, he's just so like just set dressing. He's just there, and it's well, such and a I mean, wasted opportunity. I, I know towards the beginning of our of our show, I gave him the benefit of the doubt of like maybe they're trying to take Roosevelt somewhere or build him up to the larger than life caricature that we know of Roosevelt from history. But they just never get there. They never they didn't do. bother. Yeah. Or I mean, if they attempted, it didn't didn't work didn't out. Didn't land. But. All right. Well, we should get into some listener feedback. We did get a few emails here, so um, I, feel like, I feel like I didn't actually answer your question. 
but that's fine. Well, that's okay. Uh, no, it's like you said. I think I think an unknown was the right way to go. But I was just kind of wondering if you had anybody kind of on the forefront of your mind of like if they were to stunt cast it and try to give you that last impression of there was someone cool, someone bigger than this small FX show involved in it for an episode. Stunt casting is such a slippery slope, though, because it can easily turn silly. For sure. Like so quickly. Yeah. Even if the person is a good actor and they're really like doing their best, sometimes you just get too distracted. Mm-hmm. Like Spacey and Seven worked so well because he was good. Yeah. And he was a name, but back then he wasn't who he is now. Mm-hmm. I mean, excluding all of his recent all scandal, the, yeah. but I mean, in terms of his stardom, uh, he wasn't who he was now. Yeah. And I, I'm try- I know there's some examples that make my brother and I just like die laughing. We've seen there's some stunt casting where we're just like, what the fuck? <laughs> like, really? You couldn't find anybody else? <laughs> But I, when stunt casting is done right, though, it's so good. Yeah. I forever, for the rest of my life, will always talk about how good James Earl Jones is in the Sandlot. And it's yeah. total stunt casting. Yeah. But it works so well. Um, I meant when I when I said I didn't, don't feel like I answered your question, I meant in regard to is it a good adaptation? Uh, well, was it, was, it, was it satisfying to you? I think I know the answer to that, but was it a satisfying adaptation <laughs> for you? I really don't want to say no, but I don't think so. Yeah. I don't think I'm particular. Like if they said we're going to reboot The Alienist in a year, I would, part You'd of me like, would, All right. part of me would be like, let's see how it goes this Whatever. Time. But we're also like, you know, driving this great big spaceship of America into the sun. So whatever. <laughs> it's, let's do it. <laughs> I think in, in many ways it did. Like I'm not disappointed. I'm not angry with it i'm a little disappointed i think it could have been done so much better and it wouldn't have taken much more effort i think what you said is 100 percent right you need a sam catlin you need a, a seth rogan to to compare it to preacher you need someone who cares about the source material enough to fight for it and to weave it into the into the show a little bit more thoroughly rather than just be like these characters are interesting templates and this setting is cool well we knew early on that the credit that caleb carr has on the show was largely just a just meaningless figurehead yeah exactly and that is he's troubling the, he's the guy because even yeah even if you even if your showrunner is simply there of like i know tv and can help you caleb carr bring your show to mm-hmm. tv that isn't what they did and and they really needed that person to that that understand. I, I think that's what really stands out to me is I, I look at this show and I'm I'm amazed it exists and I kind of look at it and say why bother because yeah. this isn't a lucrative property this isn't like preacher I get because Seth Rogen and uh, Evan Goldberg are passionate about it they're like hey the book is great exactly they love the comic book comic books are hot right now what's something that's for mature audiences it's a little risque yet we can make topical stories about oh preacher it's perfect now's the time it's been in development hell for like 10 15 years but now we can do it mm-hmm. makes total sense on paper makes totally total sense on screen like it's perfect it's a it's a perfect marriage and this show i don't understand who's like yeah, yeah the alien th- and that was that's <laughs> the thing is like it was i'm pretty certain when it was announced fukunaga wasn't attached in the beginning right mm-hmm. i think it was just fx was like hey we've optioned the alienist and this was like, a this was a, a <laughs> book that sold well in 1997 <laughs> yeah, or something. Yeah, so it's like it. There wasn't that person there that was like, "This is my passion project to to really bring it through." And and, and I think it shows. I think it shows the final product. So. Yeah, that that's you really hit the nail on the head, and you you put my thoughts into words, and which is which is surprising. But good job. You're 
You're thank you and you're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> Let me stumble over my own words for a See, second. There you here. go. You're like Will Ferrell in old school when he's uh, when he has to answer those. And he's like, I blacked out. I'm like, what happened? <laughs> he like nails the answer. Yeah, uh, that's that's exactly it, and it's a shame because I feel like there are there are creatives out there that it, who would have read this and been a little bit more passionate and be like, you yeah, know, like let me let me uh, help bring this to life. So yeah. Oh well, I still think it's good. It's just not what it could have been. And I, if you ever get around to listening to the audiobook when you finish, you'll just probably like do the Furiosa from Mad Max, just wander into the desert and scream <laughs> because you'll be like, why? That could have, when you'll see what it could have been. Oh, buddy. Yeah. At least now you can read it and picture Luke Evans as, yeah. uh, as John. It might be easier for me to get through it. As now John that I can bum- bumbling his way through, <laughs> through everything. Oh, you'll, you'll laugh out loud so many times because John is such a knucklehead, both in the book and the show. Yeah. He's a little dumber, I think, in the show. But in the book, he definitely gets into some situations where he like he thinks he's right, and you're just gonna like you're just gonna like it. Good. Next time, when I finish my my current reread, if I ever do, I'm gonna try to carry over a little bit of the, from the show. But I feel like I'll end up defaulting to kind of what I've always what you had anyway. before. Yeah. yeah, which is fine. All right, listener feedback. Uh, Shane wrote in. He said, "Hi guys, I was a bit let down after watching the season finale as well, but overall, I enjoyed the show as a whole. A few things I had questions about. Number one." Weren't there riots in the end of the book, or am I thinking of Angel of Darkness? You responded to this via text, Nick. I think you Just said, to you, yeah. Yeah, you said it, Angel of Darkness had the riots t- at the end of it. They're not at the end. They're at like the... Wait, are they at the end? I thought they were like in the halfway point. No, I think maybe they are at the end. Obviously, I need to reread that one, too. <laughs> there are these. There is a huge riot at the... Uh, it's It's almost more of like a... I think he might be... We might be confusing two different circumstances. There's almost like a giant gang war okay. in the second book, and that's what I thought he meant. Okay, which is so awesome. It's such an awesome like set piece in my mind. And but in in the Alienist, the book, where I mean, I mean, we talked about the fact that in the show there was like Paul Kelly. There were does. riots that were stirred up by Paul Kelly. Yeah. yeah, I think at the end there might be a little bit of rioting over the. The killer's fate, the killer being just killed and not brought to justice, but I don't think it, it's nothing that impacts the plot in like a okay. in like a serious way. Okay. So he he and I might be both thinking of the 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 riots and the uh, like gang war at the in in the second book, which is so sweet. <laughs> I really want to spoil a small part of it for you. <laughs> I don't think you should. Okay. Because there's people reading it right now because of us. So yeah. Um, They'll get there though, and they'll know. That it's like it's it would be such a big budget thing to try to pull off, but it's so awesome. Think like the beginning of like Gangs of New York. If you've seen Gangs of New York, I haven't. Except, uh, of course, <laughs> that's fine. It's it's an okay movie. Yeah. Anyway, uh, number two from Shane here. He says, "Do you think Caleb Carr wrote Laszlo to be on the spectrum of autism or maybe a sociopath?" I thought about that while listening to one of your podcasts a few weeks ago concerning his struggles with relationships. Uh, I kind of, I mean, I I at least got that Daniel Bruhl was maybe playing him that way and I have a feeling that like in a lot of literature even with like Sherlock Holmes and going back to that kind of thing the way that those characters are written it's almost as if it is people it is authors using their experiences with people that are on the spectrum but showing intelligence you know like an Asperger's syndrome type situation mm-hmm. um genius kind of has that context to it in a lot of these cases you know the people the people that are extremely intelligent or hyper aware or very analytical 
tend to be uh, portrayed in a way that we have now come to learn, at least in my lifetime, is signs that someone may be on the spectrum of autism. But I, what, what did you think, Nick? I think the show leans that way more than the book. I think it's it's easier for us, especially with the aid of movies and television that portray characters this way to just assume someone is that way. Yeah. When people can be much more complex than that. I think le- people in life, in real life, who, like you said, are, are, are genius or they're overly, not overly, but very analytical and everything you just used to describe certain great minds i think the reasons often that they're antisocial aren't because they aren't capable of it because they don't care i think that they often see futility in social engagement or they don't necessarily get positivity out of a lot of uh human interaction necessarily because they're operating on a whole different level than us i think that they uh they get fulfillment out of other sources so for a lot of people while it the ultimate in like recharging so to speak is like hanging out with good friends cracking open a beer and just like talking or like going out somewhere and experiencing something but for a lot of people that are further in those directions for them something that's more meaningful meaningful is like just studying or like or or working a lot of spending time thinking through things exactly and i so i don't think it's necessarily like a, a a disorder or they're on the spectrum, so to speak, but it might just be like, that's just the way they are. And they, it's not because they can't, it's because they don't see they the value. Choose they don't see to. the value in it. Yes, exactly. Yeah. I guess I don't know enough about the autism spectrum and whether or not that is like a described section of that spectrum of people that yeah, there are can, some, but don't, or like, you know, there are some people that that's just not what does it for them. Yeah. They don't see, they don't get value out of it. And so that's just the way they are. And I think that a lot of this was, <clears throat> Not reinforced necessarily, but after I saw The Imitation Game, I was like, this movie sucks, first of all. I didn't really like it. Mm-hmm. And I've liked it less no. the more I've thought about it. But the more I, I actually was compelled to go do more reading about Alan Turing, and I was like reading about it, and apparently he was a very charming and a well-liked person, and he was really nice to people and like was really great with children. And you watch the, the movie, which Hollywood loves this idea of like the tortured genius who can't connect with humans. and He's more of a yeah. robot. Oscar but, bait, if there ever yes. was Oscar bait. And, but that's just not the reality of it. Even Sherlock, which is essentially what springboarded Benedict Cumberbatch into all these characters of like eccentric, you know, douchey genius. Uh, that character still has like a bit of a human element to him. He just doesn't want to admit it to anybody. You know, he still cares about Watson. He puts up a facade for purposes. He's still a human. Whereas in the imitation game, they really tried to reduce Alan Turing to like this poor, like creature and who was just like pitiable all the time. And it sounds like by a, a lot of accounts, he led a good life up until, you know, near the end. And he wasn't this misunderstood guy that was picked on all the time and like marginalized and stuff. So, well, what do you think? What do you make of because uh, there was a part in the show where Laszlo speaks to the photo of his father. And yeah, that's says, the scene I, I was thinking of. Yeah, I, I you'll I, you'll always you were right. I'm, a, I'm an imposter or something I'm a like pretender that. Pretender. Yeah. Or something like, like that. was that was there any part of the book that that was? No, no. And that's fine. I think that Hollywood loves to just pigeonhole people into these one note kind of these these cliches like alan turing and the imitation game they like that because people think that's cool that's unique like they connect to that but honestly if you just make a complex character people will get more out of that i think if they're willing to anyway yeah like you said the imitation game is almost like 
it's almost like an Oscar movie, the movie mm-hmm. in, in, in many, many ways. You watch it and you're just kind of like, oof. Yeah. But the writing is so surface and so uh, just boring and uninspired and just like, yep, we'll just check these boxes here and the Academy will eat it right up. Yeah. And uh they did or like a lot of people did and yeah. i watched it and i was like what are people talking about like <laughs> i i love a lot of what's going on here and i really love a lot of the people involved but this isn't very good no so uh, what i do think is cool about laszlo is he is a complex character and i think when he's in that scene you're, you're talking about where he's talking to that photo i think his uh sort of imposter nature or pretending nature i think that I think he he would be capable of connecting with people more. I just don't think... I think he's more in that first group I was describing where he just chooses not to. I think he he fights it because he's he's a man of extreme science and he's a pioneer in his field. So he doesn't even have decades to look back on and say... Well, there were other people like me who are so driven, but they they managed to have like lives. Well, I think some of it is in the in what you said about how your your dad just likes anything he watches. The idea that. Laszlo being a participant in these interaction that he literally studies to understand yes. more about people. Mm-hmm. It it would it probably n- not only makes it difficult, but also it makes it difficult for him to learn from them being in it rather than observing it, you know? Well, and when you're always working essentially because his vocation and his calling and his interest is involved in learning why people are the way they are mm-hmm. you're essentially always on you're always you're always, always thinking analyzing, about that always looking at it it's the same reason it's hard for me to just sometimes just watch a movie and not like yeah. pick it apart or notice things that are wrong or you know anything it's because I, I work in that field and so it sometimes it does strip the joy away from just watching something and that's why i and a lot of actually a lot of people who work in in film or in media production they like really bad movies and bad directors because they can turn their brains off. Yeah. They know what they're in for. They just don't, they don't like Michael, see worth in picking it apart so they can just watch Christopher it. Nolan really enjoys Michael Bay movies. Yeah. And he's talked about that, how he thinks Michael Bay is kind of an auteur because <laughs> there's no one else like him. Yeah. He has his own aesthetic and his own movies and, and, and Nolan's like, he does it well. Like he does it and no one else can do it. And I, I can just totally imagine Christopher Nolan popping on, you know, Armageddon, and or the rock and just being like yeah whatever like it's a popcorn movie and he's good at it i'll watch it there is it the funny thing about film and especially about criticism when you dive deeper into it there is worth in things that are seemingly worthless sometimes because ultimately you're not you know you're not always going to be in the mood for strawberry you're sometimes you're going to want chocolate or you're going to want <laughs> vanilla or you're going to want mint chocolate chip if you're that kind of movie watcher and maybe you're not, maybe you are very like, I like this one flavor. I like this one kind of movie and that's all I'm into. That's fair. It's, you can't necessarily hold that against somebody. I don't know, Nick, you'll never convince me that pain and gain was worth it. <laughs> you, you see my, what I'm driving towards here. <laughs> I see that smile what's, growing on what's your face. What's really funny is uh, <laughs> the, yeah, the, it, what's the least kind of ice cream that you would ever touch. It's like the pecan something. The pistachio. The pistachio. Oh, pistachio ice cream is good though. Um, <laughs> Everything has its has its place. I mean, it exists for a reason, and, and there will always be somebody that finds value in something. Yeah. But anyway, we're gonna. Uh, I feel like I'm I'm diverting here pretty hard, but um, I don't even know where I was going with that. But it's this idea that maybe being so close to something you're studying, it it, it affects the way you can live other aspects of your life. Like I had a friend who was going to film school in Chicago, and he was like a movie nut, and he changed his major after two years because he was like studying 
film all the time, it makes and having to pick apart and dissect and figure out what didn't work, it makes you enjoy it less. Like yeah. he's like, I find myself no longer wanting to watch movies. He's like, I get exhausted of it because it's homework or whatever. Yeah. And I, that's very valid. And I think for Laszlo, that's part of it too, is like he just spends all day thinking about what makes this person this way. It's the same reason that like, you know, we, we have the character of like the old cynical cop or detective in, in fiction. And those people exist because their job is so difficult. And it, of course you're going to assume the, on you. the worst about humanity all the time because that's what you're surrounded by 24 seven. Yeah. And there's a, that character. So that archetype exists for a reason because that that's kind of the way that that lifestyle really would be. You yeah. know, it would be hard to be a, a surgeon and not feel like just exhausted all the time and, and wonder, you know, uh, about the fragility of life. You know, if, if your job is to try to save it and you can't always save it, like, you know, what does it all mean? Yeah. I'm sure there's all these professions and like Laszlo's, profession is an extremely serious one especially back then when there weren't that many of them if not only him really that was that exact you know we don't see like any other alienists throughout the course of the series so and well and even the idea that he's not even given the credit where it's due for what he people knows just think it's like yeah, people gobbledygook think yeah people think it's horoscopes or like whatever essentially they yeah. probably think more of horoscopes than they, of horoscopes than they did of him. And I wish, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I wish there was a little bit more of that, even with the Isaacsons in the show, like the the whole idea of the finger marks, fingerprints, yeah, whatever you want to call them. In the book, it's pointed out that like, yeah, this is considered ludicrous. Like, you can't tell anything about someone from the way their fingertips are because nobody really bothered to go. Wait a minute. Let me see your. Yeah. Oh, hold on. <laughs> well, these are a little bit different, aren't they? <laughs> Do these look like yours? Oh, shit. Wait, hold on. The third guy. Come here. <laughs> Let, me Let me see that. There is a really hysterical uh, Vine. I know you weren't really as into Vine necessarily as I was when... I was into it by proxy because of you it. and Rick. I loved Vine yeah. so much because I thought it was the most clever, creative way for people to make these videos. And there was one that was captioned like... the Something like the first guy to suggest studying bodily fluids on a crime scene must have been looked at weird and it was one guy playing all the characters in it but they were, he had like two cop characters one was like man and they were very like corny like 1950s detectives and one's like not a single bullet casing and it was like nope nothing here and they were going back and forth the two of them about any evidence and then the third character like he would like lean into the frame and he's like was there any semen <laughs> <laughs> and then he just kind of looks back and forth with them and they're kind of like what the f-? which at the time yeah someone was like, what the f- what yeah what could you want with that? <laughs> like, what could you learn from that? And uh, so Laszlo is not to equate that necessarily to <laughs> Laszlo, but his his sh- pro- his profession just yeah. at the time, you would totally understand. Like, people look at it and sound like, this sounds ridiculous. You can't know anything about the way someone is the way they are because of their childhood. What does that matter? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Shane's third thing here, he says, am I the only one who thought Beecham crawling on the pipes above was just like the aliens in the alien movies? That was my favorite part. It was it's spooky as fuck. <laughs> Sorry for the long email. Thanks again, guys. It's been fun. Thank you, Shane. Yeah, Thanks, no, Shane. it's very alien. It is. Yeah, I know exactly the the moment, at least that I'm thinking of, is an aliens when they're in the the colony and the one like they don't see anybody, and then one of the uh, marines looks under the uh, under the floor and yeah. they see like five of them just crawling towards them. It's yep. so scary, and that scene. Aliens was on TV when I was a kid, and that was the shot that always stood out to gotcha. me. And I was like, "Ooh!" But in in the in the first Alien, there is all there are all, also moments like that. But totally, uh, 
similar to that moment in aliens but yeah it was uh it was okay it was kind of goofy yeah for me but i i see the similarity yeah sure uh sue wrote in she said hi guys i want to thank you again for a great podcast you're welcome uh, I look yes. forward to it after every episode, <laughs> and even though it was a dark subject, you always made me laugh. A few observations. She's got a book spoiler here, so pause or whatever if you're reading the book. Joseph was not killed like the other boys. Beecham dropped him off at the 808 building wrapped in a sack and was killed by a sharp blade in his head. John basically tripped over Joseph walking into the building. As a reader, it was shocking and so sad. Also in the book, even though Laszlo said he was finished with the case, he continued to research and came back with new ideas. I think that was something that we commented on in the last episode. Mm-hmm. You'd mentioned that. Uh, this might explain his behavior in the show when he returned to help. Uh, with that, I may never look at a Fig Newton the same. <laughs> <laughs> Looking forward to your Westworld podcast. Maybe now I'll understand what the heck is going on there. Thanks again. Well, we'll all be in the same boat with Westworld. Yeah, no, I mean, maybe we'll help you understand or maybe we'll just take you down with us. Who knows? It's true. We may totally misdirect. I think we had some theories that totally didn't get any traction in the yeah. first season. No, but they were fun to think about. So Was that 2016? Yes. Oh, man. Yeah. Has it really been two years? Almost, yeah. Cripes. Yep. Uh, thank thanks. you, Sue. Yeah, thanks, Sue. Uh, thanks for following us uh, uh, until Westworld. I hope uh, some of the other listeners here do that. What's Sue's well. Twitter handle? Is she is she one of the ones that was, in she that, was. involved in that, in that little... Yeah, Clump she, of us she sending, was sending Luke Evans gifts to each other. Yes, um, mostly, you don't have to say it on the air. That's fine. Yeah, no, it's Sue. Sue was on there. Katrine was on there. We had a few other people that were that were tweeting at us as they were waiting in anticipation for our uh, for this extreme letdown of a recap. <laughs> just like the Alienist, yes. the finale of our podcast. We're both just gonna get shot and uh, bleed out <laughs> on the roof here, and not tell you why. Um, but thank you, Sue. Uh, our friend Nevi wrote in, Hey guys, here are my two cents. The finale was an incoherent mess. What message were they, were we supposed to take from it, from the series overall? They were redu- they reduced the killer to a nut job that got away with it for so long because of police corruption. I would have been fine with that if they hadn't built him up to be this fascinating psych case. Laszlo's breakthrough about the reservoir was the only reason uh, John Beecham was caught, which wasn't exactly the result of careful detective work, but a lucky guess. We never found out why John Beecham changed his M.O. or what was up with the cannibalism or why only boys. I just realized the dresses were probably a baptism thing. Uh, any thoughts on that stuff so far? Uh, there was something in there. It's uh, the fact that they built Beecham up to, to be a fascinating sight case. and that Oh, <clears throat> yeah, there's, well, in the book... Uh, Laszlo is given credit by a lot of people, like a small group, like, you know, Roosevelt. He kind of did it in the show. That was yeah. one thing they kind of got right about Roosevelt. But it's it's very much one of those things where they're like, oh, we have to attribute this success to, like, good police work just for the benefit of the public. Yeah. And I think that the show came close to that, but it didn't really get across the point of, like, you know the characters telling each other like yeah we will always know that it was us that solved it you know what i mean like they they kind of have that moment a little bit more i think some of nevi's frustration is that in the end at least instead of relying on the good police work that they did in the episode before Mm -hmm. that they did throughout the series uh instead it just comes down to well laszlo has a hunch that it's the reservoir and not highbridge tower 
Like, <sighs> I mean, that's not terribly different from the book, but it is all the police work that gets them the information that they need in the first place. Like, if if the if the investigation had just started and Lazlo was like, "I think he'll be here," then that I could see that perspective. But I do think all that police work. But there was a journey. Yeah, to get the, them the to journey. The journey. Find out who Beecham was yes, and and why he operates the way he does. But the journey is much more developed and it makes more sense in the book so yeah. i can agree that in the show it's very inconsistent and and we talked about this where they'll suddenly be like here's a big clue and then they just move on and they don't talk about that clue any further or we don't see them integrated into the body of the investigation yeah because there's no chalkboard in this show <laughs> and that's why <laughs> that's what the show was it wasn't a champion it was just and the message is you don't need chalkboards you don't need to be organized and keep your thoughts together and build a case. You just talk about things and then see what the next clue yeah. will be. Go outside, look at some kids playing in a fountain, and then draw a completely different conclusion about it. <laughs> uh, Nevi goes on to say, Overall, the show suffered from poor pacing and randomly shifting its focus. It would devote time to something that you'd think would be important and then drop it, i.e. John's initial whoring, the Zweig case, the Isaacson's forensic breakthroughs, Willem's inconsequential death, mm-hmm. Cyrus's revenge, etc. The themes of parental abuse, 19th century immigrant life, cross-dressing boy whores, and police corruption were intriguing but never fully explored. That said, I like the show and would watch a second season. I would love to see the Isaacson brothers in a spinoff, by the way. Oh, that's a neat idea. Yeah. No, I would be down for that. Uh, I'm glad you guys made me see the humor in John's character, and I look forward to adding you to my Westworld podcast rotation. Thank you, Nevi. Thank you. We're glad to be a part of it, and hopefully you will, uh, you'll you'll enjoy and, and write into us there as well. Yeah, I doubt in any way that we'll be disappointed by Westworld, that's for sure. That that show is the inverse of this in terms of how incredibly detailed it has been thought That about. show only exists because Nolan and Joy want it to exist. Yes. It's not. And, and they, yeah. they put an incredible amount of time and research and thought into every single thing that is there and it shows yep like that show is like a just sistine chapel of 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 how deliberately it's been thought out and like a clock and the way everything works in harmony yep not Agreed. and i don't mean to, to disparage the alienist by no by saying all that but you know your your thoughts are are Pretty much what I feel. I just can't bring myself to say it necessarily. <laughs> so yes, you are. I yeah, think, there, there's I think nothing I, to disagree with Nebby no, on. So not at all. I think that uh, one thing I do want to talk about in this episode before I forget is the bookends because I think the bookends yeah. are very important to helping the story feel like it has come full circle. And I think had they included that in the show, it would have been really awesome and would have uh, would have helped the finale feel like it gave you a little more closure and maybe. Uh, helped you feel like it landed on the theme a little bit more. Yeah, because I agree with what Nevi's saying that it you don't usually from a finale you take away a feeling of like this is why all that happened. And I again will think of the True Detective season one finale, which is such an amazing. The finale. last line of that show. I was going to say the last scene and the last line. Yeah, it brings it all home and it leaves you with this feeling of like wow. And like I was talking to Alex over lunch today. I just finished rewatching the Thin Red Line today. And that's a movie where the final like sequence and the final shots leave you. The final frame of that movie leaves you with the message, essentially. Yeah. And I, I think that's incredibly powerful. And there are there's a reason why we remember the beginnings and endings of movies so well, especially if they're well done. Yeah. A movie can kind of 
stall in the middle a little bit and we'll forgive it if the ending is fantastic well yeah there's a few topics that i had at the end here some stuff up on the board and a few that i have down here um that i want you to go full book and show spoiler on but we'll we'll save that for after the after the emails we got two more here uh dana wrote in said hi you guys thanks for a great podcast season you were definitely a big factor in my enjoyment of the series some questions and comments on the final episode Regarding Moore's kissing Sarah, he warmed her up first by kissing her forehead and then her cheek. She was definitely okay with it. The dialogue in Moore's performance of pouring his heart out to her was my first emotional moment. Uh, I still am hesitant to say she was okay with it, but it's hard. Yeah, it's really. She certainly didn't like turn away, but it's it's very. I I don't know. In 1896, I have a feeling that women were in such a place that they did not feel as though they had the power the power to turn away from a situation like that. It, yeah, it's hard for us to, to really judge, I yeah. feel like. Uh, Dana goes on to say, I do wish the TV show ending had been more faithful to the book. Would have liked to see Biff Ellison, the disintegration of John Beecham, his massive tick, etc. When Chrysler said that in the end they only found a wounded child, that comment came out of no- nowhere since they did not show Beecham devolving or disintegrating to his wounded childlike state. We mm-hmm. agree. Uh, after Teddy Roosevelt gave Captain Connor's award to his family posthumously, posthumously, (laughs) how do you interpret the the look Burns gives Teddy? Grudging respect. I'm still the boss and don't you forget it since he probably told Teddy to give Connor the credit. That's kind of where, like when I, uh, wrote out my notes, I thought it was, it was Burns being impressed with Teddy's diplomacy. I, I would agree with that. I think also... Maybe be, not impressed, but uh, relieved and happy with? I think impressed. Okay. That's my that's my impression. Because we see them we see them knock heads so much, but to have Teddy be like, yes, we got this investigation done, we found the killer this way, but I'm going to still default to the, the police work did it. Yeah, I think it's it's impressed, and it's also like a little bit of... of understanding that maybe maybe teddy will make it after all like i think in his mind he almost won a small victory because he's like roosevelt's learning he's got to play the game yeah you can't you sometimes even if you want to avoid it you have to play politics and you have to you can't always do whatever you want to do or think is right like he's he's thinking a little bigger than himself and even bigger than like his more his own personal code yeah which, uh, you know, I'm sure he would love nothing more than to expose Connor for like a corrupt cop and a ge- general bad guy. But he realizes that maybe the fabric of society isn't quite ready for that yet. Yeah. And that's not to say that either way is right. I think it's just really interesting that that's where it lands. Yeah. And I think that that is kind of summed up and kind of burns look just being like, all right, this guy... This guy might just uh he might just make it a little longer than I thought he would. It's almost like a, I'll I'll get you next time kind of thing. Yeah. You know, almost like, you know, when like Or or sh- you should have listened to me sooner kind of yeah, almost. I love where his position is like the front row and like on the end. <laughs> so he's just right there to be like I think it's also a little bit of that like he's not going anywhere. Like he's still going to be there and he's still going to have an eye on him kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh and at the end, when Chrysler gave Moore the ring he was going to give Mary, I noticed he used his right hand. Moore seemed genuinely touched, not only for the ring itself and what it meant for Chrysler, but also perhaps because he used that arm. That was my second emotional moment. It's a good detail. I didn't catch that. 
I did not either. Uh, some miscellaneous questions or comments. So if it wasn't John Beecham that bumped into Moore in episode four at 51 minutes and 10 seconds, then who was it? <laughs> the Swede or some random guy design, designed to throw the viewer off track? Dana wrote in and mentioned that part to me, and I wrote back and was like, I don't think that's Beecham, given the ways that we had seen him beforehand. I think it was just because that is the scene as they are all gathering, unknowingly gathering at the behest of Beecham. Mm-hmm. Uh, I thought it was just something to put the viewer on edge a little bit. John knocks into someone. It kind of makes you be like, oh, what the hell is that? And sure. be a little bit more pins and needles, essentially. Uh, any other thoughts on that? No? No, not really. Uh, what was the significance of killing near water? That was the whole John the Baptist thing, which mm-hmm. I think the the show ultimately arrives at, but does not punctuate or touch on in any meaningful way which is a bummer i think that the beecham beecham identifies with john the baptist i guess i don't know if you have any like other knowledge about why beecham i mean water is generally symbolically viewed as like a as like a cleansing cleansing agent yeah Yeah, and, and it's a way to purify yourself and i think that while he does identify with John the Baptist and that I think he thinks he's doing something to purify. It's tough because Beecham sort of empathizes with these kids, but at the same time he despises them. Yeah. And so I think he's simultaneously kind of thinks he's purifying them. He's also purifying the city by getting rid of like immigrants and the country. Yeah. I think he's seeking to purify himself mm-hmm. and, all of that is wrapped up into his ritual there and uh, having it be near water is obviously where else is somebody going to going to do that yeah and uh, i think that the the reservoir not only serves as the heart of the city's water system so to speak uh, you know the tying that his mother's heart together with it but also it's like pretty much the largest concentration of water in the city that's not like a you know a body of water yeah so that the reason they wind up there is kind of twofold. Yeah. Uh, do you think that if Chrysler were alive today, he would be considered somewhere on the autism spectrum? We already talked about that. Yeah. But I'm not uh, sure. And the, interesting as that, portrayed in the book, I don't think so. Yeah. As portrayed in the show, I'm not really sure that I think so either. Uh, Dana also says, I placed the locations that were mentioned in the audiobook onto Google Maps. It was interesting to see everything that was relative to each other. New Paltz, the gunks where Teddy Roosevelt is buried, the team's office, the places Beecham lived, where some of the boys are found, the Croton Reservoir, and now Bryant Park and New York Public Library. That's a really fun project. That is really cool. That's really neat. Uh, and then finally, regarding the abridged audiobook, Mary's character is completely eliminated. And the auto- audiobook seems the more hell? tentative and unsure of herself compared to... Oh, the audiobook Sarah seems more ten- ten- tentative... I'm having trouble with words today and unsure of herself compared to TV Sarah. So I learned my lesson and just ordered a physical copy of the angel of darkness. Thanks again for a great season. Hopefully TNT will produce a sequel and depending on the day and time, I would try to participate in any live event you put on apologies. We, we we're just trying to get something out. So we didn't end up coordinating any live stream or anything like that, but thank you for offering. Um, yeah, that's crazy that they just completely cut a character. Why why do they do who's why are they abridging things? Well, what is the f- purpose of abridging any work of 
I'm asking that about this show. <laughs> There's a lot that doesn't make it into the show that it feels essential. Well, but I get an adaptation. But if you're like, I'm going to put out an audiobook version of this book, but I'm going to cut out parts. Yeah. Um, don't know. Got me. That just seems like a weird. Mary Mary is definitely a, a, a smaller presence in the book than she is in the show. Yeah. Like I said, her death, you don't re- you're not really there for it. And even Laszlo's feelings on her, you don't know until late in the game. You don't get any of these scenes of them one on one. You do get him getting angry with her, yeah, when she goes out with John. But you just you don't really know why. You just assume he's being a dick, yeah. It never really crosses your mind that he's jealous or that he's afraid that she'll get hurt in some way, or afraid that she'll leave him, yeah, or that, that he that, just didn't know where she was. You know, I, I'm finding generally that most adaptations of source material I care about, even if the adaptation doesn't necessarily land for me, there's generally always something that is enhanced for the better. Yeah. And I think Mary is definitely better in the show than she is in the books. And so yeah. is the relationship with Laszlo. Those were the only moments I really got emotional. The highlights were, of the... Were the two of them. By far, my, my number one moment was her and John at the movies. Yeah. It was just the shit. Yeah. It was so good. Yeah. And... Uh, you know, I'm I'm still in the in the middle of my Terrence Malick rewatch. When I get to the New World, I can't wait to see uh, Kriyanka Kilcher again because that was the first thing I saw her. The only other thing I've seen her in, and she's tremendous in that as well. Yeah. So I really hope we see more of her. So she's very talented. Yeah. No, I, I she seemed great. Uh, the I don't. I guess I don't know if there's anything else that was really really better in the show than in the book. I can't really think of anything. You liked the. The portrayal of Laszlo, I think. Yeah, I think you were I, very happy with oh, it. Oh, yeah. I don't know that it totally, was better necessarily. Totally uh, it exceeded my expectations, but okay. I don't know that I prefer the show version of Laszlo yeah. over the book. But That's they're, fair. They're almost different characters. They're they're pretty different. Yeah. Uh, but I I really like them both. More, more is fantastic in the show, too, but he's still <laughs> better in the book. How about, were there any references to figs or Newtons in the book? <laughs> I don't think in so. The book? There's definitely not this weird indirect product 1896 product placement exactly (laughs) i i would love now to make like a novelty twitter or (sighs) a novelty show that just just dub over that scene (laughs) with like well no it should just be it's got to be a meme we just gotta have the four frames of there you go yeah that's it beautiful for sure all right i'll work on it yeah well let's do that (laughs) we'll we'll be the only people that give a shit about this (laughs) we're the only we are the only people that care about this scene for sure i I, I scrolled through a lot of the alienist hashtags and i was like i am the only one who tweeted anything about fig (laughs) Fig news besides uh uh the the gentleman who wrote it yes who who did the photoshop for his name but that was fantastic uh all right we got one more email here it's from Mark. Uh, hey, Alex and Nick, I wanted to write in for the final wrap-up episode what up, Mark? with some thoughts about The Alienist and the podcast. I'll start by saying thanks to you, Nick, for talking about The Alienist in the last episode of The Preacher Podcast. I had never heard of the book, but your enthusiasm for it at the time, or and at the time, the upcoming TV adaptations, TV, TV adaptation, <laughs> woo, <laughs> inspired me to Google it. I admit I thought it was going to be a sci-fi type story based upon the title. However, I also like the occasional serial killer slash police procedural story. So I wasn't disappointed to learn it was not what I first thought it would be. And it turns out my wife had already read it and recommended it as well. I wasn't disappointed. I don't know if I'll ever go back and read it again as my to-be-read list of books is pretty long. But Mm -hmm. I definitely will get around to reading the sequel probably sooner rather than later. Absolutely. As for the show, when I emailed you guys after the first episode, I said I thought it was good but not great. I think that still holds true. As you two discussed multiple times, the show had its share of problems. 
primarily from a writing or directing perspective, all of the acting was top no- top notch for the most part, especially Dakota Fl- Fanning. The one glaring negative would have to be Brian Garrity as TR. But it seems to me they just wrote his character poorly rather than being any fault in his acting ability. Yeah, I agree. The production values were also impressive in my opinion, and I really thought it was late 19th century New York, so no complaints there at all. Very true. Yeah. Overall, I thought the show started a bit rough for the first several episodes, but then it got in a pretty good groove. My favorite episode was number eight, in which the gang broke up into three parts and really blew the story open in terms of who the main suspect was. Mm -hmm. For me, I like how they took big chunks of the book and condensed it all into a solid hour of television. It was quite a high point in the show for me. Sadly, the final episode was the biggest disappointment. (coughs) Pardon me. The whole final confrontation paled in comparison to the book, but it didn't ruin the whole show for me. Despite the flaws in the show, I think it's it's still one of the better adaptations of a novel I've watched in quite some time. The biggest glaring question for me, though, in the whole adaptation was, why the hell did they make John Moore an illustrator? (laughs) It makes zero sense even now after the show has finished. It's a mystery. Oh, man. We haven't even talked about that. Yeah. Uh, Let me finish this email here. I have to thank you both for a great series of podcasts about the show. I enjoyed them very much. I hope that the show creators revisit the gang if they ever get around to adapting the Angel of Darkness and that you run another series of podcasts to discuss it. At the end of last week's podcast, you also also suggested people write in and mention any good shows that we were watching or going to watch. Well, my wife and I just started watching The Terror on AMC. The first two episodes aired back to back. This is also an adaptation of a book, but neither of us have read it. So we have nothing to compare to, which is probably for the best. I thought the first two episodes were strong. We'll definitely be watching the next one. I'm also very looking, or I'm also very much looking forward to Legion coming back on FX for season two. The first season was pretty strong for the most part. It's a nice twist on the whole superhero genre, in my opinion. Finally, I'm most excited about Westworld coming back. It's the best TV, sh- uh, best show on TV right now, as far as I'm concerned. But I have to be honest here. There's another Westworld podcast that I listen to, so I'm not sure I'll be able to listen to yours on a regular basis. I have too many other podcasts to listen to. Please don't think less of me. Oh, boy. Looking favorites. Looking forward to listening to you both when Season 3 of Preacher comes out. Best regards, Mark. Uh, Mark. Who is this other show you speak yeah, of? Yeah, no. Uh, I listen to other Westworld podcasts as well. I do. Um, but I also listen to a lot of podcasts. I, I don't know. Tune in with us every once in a while. Maybe we'll be better than that other podcast. Never know. Who knows? Um, but in any event, thanks for listening to Pre- Preacher, and thanks for checking this out. Uh, John Moore as an illustrator. Thanks, Mark. You're a good guy. Yes, you are. I Yeah, the John Moore thing still doesn't... I mean, I think... I think there could have been reasons to make... Like, as I said several episodes ago, I was like, maybe the beauty that John was able to see in illustrating Giorgio was going to allow the killer to kind of relate to him and be, like, happy that someone could see the beauty in what he was doing or the purity or the the purification, essentially, with the baptism. But that didn't come to a head. (laughs) No, no, they never really uh, did much of anything with it. No. I, so. I, you know, we threw out a couple of theories there throughout the, the show that maybe this is why. And, and, you know, there's something between him and Laszlo and, and Laszlo's inability also to look beyond what he already sees. That this is maybe the common thread between the two of them is that they both can't necessarily distort their perspective enough to look at something from a different angle yeah you know tying with the hildebrand starling again 
ultimately, his illustration does help them track down Beecham. Yeah, I guess. But it was so... They, they do it in the book without that. Yeah, it was so de-emphasized, <laughs> and there was so much other information that it seemed pretty pointless. So, yeah, no, I think we're still just as baffled. Yeah, it uh, it doesn't make a it doesn't make a ton of sense. It was uh, I don't know, whatever. It would have made so much more sense, and and just helped in general uh, to just have him be a, a reporter. It makes yeah. way more sense. Yeah, but totally. I well, uh, I do have a, a a message on Twitter from Katrine. Yeah, what'd she I, say? That I've neglected to even reply to. So Katrine, when you listen to this, I apologize. <laughs> it's been a busy couple weeks. Um. She pretty much said, this is when she was listening to the finale. She said, I need to say, when Beecham steps into the light with a cat and proceeds to demonstratively smash it against the ceiling, wall, and floor, I couldn't help but laugh out loud. <laughs> I like cats and such, but it was like someone who wrote the script was like, okay, what is the most evil thing we can make <laughs> him do? And then Beecham proceeds to rage smash this cat in front of Joseph. What was the point? To show the kid, check out how truly deprived I am. There's a cat epidemic that wrecks havoc on the native birds in the neighborhood. <laughs> it could have been any of those two lines of thought. This is what bothered me about the show versus the book. He seemed to put more together in the book, and the motivations for killing were more more, conf- more coherent. Here, he is just reduced to Hulk smashing. And then she said, uh, thanks for your <laughs> my jury duty anecdote. Yeah, that's funny. I forgot about that. <laughs> um, I find the Angel of Darkness to be easier to read. The style of writing is easier for me to follow as a non-native speaker, and I'm quite engrossed in it. Uh, she also has been busy with a wedding and traveling. Yes, congratulations to her as well. Uh, congratulations. And she's uh, she's trying to get through it, and it's really intriguing. So early in the book, they use psychology to sketch out a potential villainess, and that process is what makes it for such interest in reading. On that note, that's why they failed at the Alienist TV show. So, uh, again, just the reinforcement that they they really do a great job of creating a profile for these people in, in the books and in the show that just never really... They get, the, they have a lot of it that kind of gets there, but they just never. But bring they're it, missing they like home. a crime writer that could make an actual profile of a person. Mm-hmm. But and, may- and they're also just missing that that visual again. It's stupid. I know to keep talking about the chalkboard, but it it is the thing that like helps you understand like this is how it would work. This and podcast was almost called the chalkboard, so you know. So it, there is almost some re- reference, yeah, to yeah. the chalkboard, and it, instead it just became our sign off line. But uh, anyway, thanks, Katrine. You were you were yeah. for the whole ride as well as uh, for Westworld. I don't think we've heard anything from her regarding Preacher. Yeah, I don't so think so. I don't so. know if she's watching it. But Katrine, you should totally check out Preacher. It's fantastic. There's yeah. so much to enjoy there. Yes, there is. Uh, especially as a non-American, uh, I would love to hear the perspective. Totally. If, if Preacher embodies a lot of like stereotypical American <laughs> culture <laughs> outside of here. I always wonder like how we as a nation look and... You know, even like five years ago, I wondered that, and I'm sure now it ain't good. So <laughs> I was I was watching Thor on the plane, Thor three, Thor Ragnarok on the plane back from Boston, and uh, the part where Carl Urban says, "I got these from the world, yeah, yeah, the, the Midgard world of Texas." Texas, <laughs> it's yeah. like, yeah, yeah, that's yep. Thor Ragnarok was so good. It was very, it was good. really fun. All right, uh, so finally to wrap up here, we had a couple topics that we were adding to the board that we could talk at the end of the series because we didn't want to spoil anything there might be some book spoilers here so if you sign off now we won't uh we won't begrudge anything from you but thank you for listening yes um but here we go so we talked about john john seeing the killer on the roof already that was at the end of one of our other episodes we did talk go about back that and okay listen to that um we also touched on the priests on the rooftop mm-hmm. and how they would use that to get around 
Um, but the third point up there, Japheth and George. Kind of what actually happened or what do you think happened between Japheth and George Beecham that kind of caused Japheth to snap and kill his family and kill George, presumably. Although in the book, you don't know. We also need to talk about the significance of Japheth's relationship with his mother. That, yep, yeah. So the other two that I had in here, the book ends and then Japheth okay, and his mother. Right, so right. Uh, let's talk about Japheth and George real quick. So uh, Japheth's brother mentions, Adam Adam Dury mentions that Japheth returned home bleeding from below or down there I think down there says. yeah does he say he returned home i think so okay i couldn't recall that detail i think he says he returned home bleeding from uh down there and you know they don't really touch on it too much but uh you and i talked about this a little bit after we recorded we didn't talk yes. about it on on our podcast but um the idea that george sexually assaulted japeth mm-hmm. yeah uh in the so in the book, Japheth, uh, Adam says this to them. I think he does in the show too that he and that Japheth and George were close, and yeah. they would go like camping and stuff, and hunting and trapping together. Because they, they and they went climbing too. Yes, because yeah. they had that in common. And at one point, Japheth doesn't come home like when he's supposed to necessarily, and Adam finds him up in like a climbing area, and he is bleeding from his rear because George raped him. Yeah, and George was nowhere to be seen, and I'm. A little bit of this, I might be getting crossed over with other stuff, but I'm I'm fairly certain that that's how it goes on. That Adam has to find him, and that uh, George just is gone mm-hmm. and is never seen or heard from. That he just disappears. It's yeah. not Adam, or I'm um, sorry, Japheth does not get revenge on him, uh, and that is part of why Japheth becomes uh, John Beecham because the idea that that he is this kind of phantom of Beecham that's out there. Con- he's continuing the hurt that that. Uh, Beecham brought on him brought on him exactly yeah. and uh, it's very clear in the book that this was like a rape and uh, the ultimate sort of betrayal especially to like a young he's still like a teenager at that point in the in the book yeah I don't really know why they like kind of pulled their punches more with that scene or with Adam's description of the scene yeah. more may, may, maybe I'm just a little oblivious and didn't connect the dots as much no, as other I people think that did, they, they don't really he just says he's bleeding down there which I mean to me, that's how I would read it, but I could see like somebody might think like, "Oh, there's some." He had some sort of genital mutilation that yeah. took place. Either way, it's clearly a violation of like his his private areas, and you know that that would that would traumatize anybody. Yeah. So uh, yeah, the book's a lot more blunt about exactly what happened, and, and it helps almost make more sense about uh, why John Beecham well, and, is what he is. And John writes. That letter to Mrs. Santarelli mentioning very much so that he didn't violate yes. the children in the way that the papers are saying. Which right? is interesting because in the final uh, showdown in the book on the res- up on top of the reservoir, like Beecham does strip down. He's like totally nude yeah. when he has uh, the boy there. And he he bends him over like he's going to. And he like actually they actually say like and if this is a little too vulgar or graphic for anybody I apologize but it's in the book he like he like fondles himself to try to like get aroused but he yeah. doesn't and they say there there's something I don't remember if it's like a loud like cry of like him being angry but he's clearly frustrated that he can't get aroused and I think the idea is that he's not homosexual like he he doesn't get aroused by these uh-huh. boys it's not there's no sexual 
uh, gratification here, but he almost wants there to be because it was done to him. It's almost like he's still trying to sort out what it meant to him. Like, why would somebody do that to him and why he can't bring himself to even try to com- to commence that act? And so part of, I think part of Laszlo's theories on why he kills them is because he can't, he can't pass on what was done to him to somebody else. So he does something even worse. Interesting. And that again in the show, like there's no way no. I, I actually wondered, I was like, there's no way they're going to show that. No. Like, there's no network that's brave enough <laughs> to do something like that. But it's very clear in the book that they, they see him doing that. And they're, I think John right away is like, we got to stop him. And Laszlo's like, wait, like we have to see what he does. Cause Laszlo even then crosses that line where he, he, his personal understanding and satisfaction from that supersedes the safety of the child for a minute. Yeah. He's like, he's still in control. He's not going to do it yet, but I have to see what happens. And that's part of what happens. So without that first part of the equation, the second part doesn't necessarily make sense. Yeah. But that's a little bit more of what happens in the book. Okay. For a little more context. It helps also explain why Japheth or or John Beecham is so angry and like so tortured and the, the sexuality of it all is still unclear to him. Yeah. And, you know, imagine, you know, a, a, a violation like that in any era, even today, would be something unspeakable that would be incredibly difficult, if not near impossible, to cope with. But in this era, it would have been, I feel like it would just, would, by nature of when it was and the way society was, it would have to be magnified even more. Yeah. So it's not that it makes Beecham forgivable in any way or right, but you can see why Laszlo would be like, I need to understand this man. I need to understand what was done to him so I can help make sure it doesn't happen to anybody else. Mm-hmm. So again, it's just, it's much more satisfying in the book that uh, the investigation and the the sympathy, even when, when like Moore says he pities him, in the show you're kind of like, why? Yeah. And in the book you, you understand more that he was, and when they, like I said, when they catch him, when they reveal themselves to him, he reverts to he like this. completely, div- like. Totally shrivels up. And yeah. He's like terrified and just like, and, and becomes this meek little thing. And I think even more kind of looks at, he's like standing next to him and he's like, God, he's so pitiable now. Like this is the guy who was tracking. And he like, they like drape a blanket or something over him. And they're or like a, a jacket. I think maybe it's one of their overcoats. And John just feels bad for him. He's like, oh, look at this, like this big brawny predator just reduced to this poor sniveling kid who yeah. was clearly just destroyed at a young age. So well, on that note as well, I remembered after that conversation, you mentioned that Beecham's relationship with his mother, like they they don't touch on that on the show at all, no. really. So what 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 in the book at least do we do we learn about Beecham and his and his relationship with his mother? So Beecham's father is like a frontier preacher, yeah, and he isn't the best dude. Like they say, he's, he's not a very good man to begin with that neither of their parents are. But I guess, uh, one night. So Adam's already born. Uh, there, there is like some tension between the parents, I think already, but Beecham's father gets drunk and he like wants to have sex with, uh, their mom and she like doesn't like him or anyway, it's a no. Yeah. And he rapes her. And from that rape, uh, John is conceived or Jay uh. is conceived. So his whole life, she like hates him Resents because him. he was the product of a rape from her his evil alcoholic father, and uh, his dad used to lash out at him too, and he used to call him like your dirty like the the dirtier than an engine phrase is like what his mother would say to him too, 
Like his mother was like the abusive, the real abusive one. Like there was the physical abuse from his de- from his father, but the emotional and verbal abuse came from his mom. And she yeah. used to call him dirtier than an engine and stuff like that. So he was screwed from birth, basically. Yeah. And that's why Adam Adam spells that out a lot more in the in the book too. He's like, you know, Japheth was always I was his only like friend and even then he's like, you know, there was always a distance between us because of our parents, but he like you know, felt bad for him all the time and, and he, you know, had this horrible tick which was born out of all the stress from from uh his constant abuse, abuse from yeah. his parents and that's why the the escapes into the into nature and into the woods are made a lot more sense because he's like there he was alone he was away from people he didn't feel you know people weren't staring at him and his facial tick and his tick would go away because he was just away from all the pressures of of humans basically but he was also sought to inflict pain on like other living things and i think adam i think it's in that too where adam like finds him dissecting animals basically like he cut he trap big traps like a rabbit or something and rather than just eating it he like tortures it he's like skinning it and adam catches him doing something like that when he's young and he's like you can't do that like that's cruel it's uh actually similar in ways to dexter if you've ever watched dexter his dad tries to channel his uh bloodlust by saying like you can take it out on like animals and stuff like that but he even catches him doing it to like like chipmunks and stuff, and then I think it graduates to like cats, and then before you know it, he's like, "I just got to kill people." Yeah. But it's also born out of the fact that Dexter, as like a baby, essentially is exposed to murder, and uh, yep. it distorts him. Yeah. All right. Well, then I think the final topic, at least, is the book ends. So the book starts uh, with like a, a prologue that. Mm-hmm. takes place after the events it's actually it's teddy roosevelt's funeral it right? is yep the book okay. starts with roosevelt's funeral and uh it's told from the perspective of Moore, as the whole book is yeah and Moore kind of talks about how unreal it, it all is i can't remember what year it's in i gotta say it's in the 1920 i'm trying to remember you'll have to look up what year roosevelt passed away but anyway uh, it it serves as a great introduction to Moore, but except he's, he's nineteen 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 nineteen. Okay, so he's a much older, not much older, but he's an older guy, and he kind of st- he reminisces on like the glory days of of him and Roosevelt and Chrysler together at uh, at Cambridge or wherever, I forgot where they went to school, but uh, anyway, he kind of sets the stage for Roosevelt as like a human being and a character and their relationship, and then he kind of spins it into. Ultimately, you know, when thinking of Teddy, I will always think of that fateful summer in, you know, 1896 when we would bring down America's first serial killer or something like that. And he talks about how he has dinner with Laszlo after the funeral. And although Laszlo wished he could have attended, he doesn't attend the funeral, but he sends a letter to the, to the wife and kids, you know, wishing them uh, his best. That he says, he, I think he says he can't bear to, to think of Theodore as, as not, a lot, not living. Like he doesn't want to acknowledge it. Yeah. He prefers to think he's still out there. And uh, he even talks about how it would be so in character of Theodore to pop open the casket and jump out and say, it's all a big (laughs) joke. And he would laugh and slap somebody on the back so hard that they would stumble. And and then he would say something about getting some action and and then they would uh, have a good time. And that's just the way Theodore is presented. And so right away, you're painted this incredibly vivid picture of Roosevelt as this larger than life character. And, uh, you know, you could see why I was let down by the the show's interpretation of of that. But he talks about how he has dinner with Laszlo at Delmonico's after that and how Dell's is uh, 
has seen better days and it's starting to decline and it's not as busy as it always was and it once was always bursting to the walls with people and you would need reservations and now they can just walk in and sit down and there are two of like you know just a handful of diners in there and how it like them has seen better days and now has moved into its twilight years and it you know back then i i I don't think the life expectancy was too high necessarily so it would be it would feel okay for like more in his mid 50s to be like yeah i'm getting near the end here and and laszlo you know as well there's something really beautiful about that. The two old friends having dinner at this old place where so much went down because there are so many moments in the book where they have dinner there and they, they reconnect over the day's events. And like Delmonico is sort of a character in the book. And so this whole prologue is a really beautiful way of establishing these two guys. And so all you get from it by the end, though, and he even says, he's like, all right, I've, I've talked too much about it. Um, let's get to it. And then the first chapter starts, and this is when you're back uh, the night that uh, Giorgio is discovered on the bridge. And uh, it also raises that great, great question that Moore asks about, you know, him thinking that fate brought them all together to work on that case. And Laszlo would argue that there's no such thing as fate, that you you arrive where you arrive based on a series of decisions. And it would cause this debate because Moore really thinks that Laszlo says, on the other hand, you know, there were there were circumstances in place that got us all to be born and moved to this area and brought to, together that was it coincidence? Could it possibly, could anything like that possibly be coincidence? And it sets up this really fun dynamic in your mind. And uh, it makes you think too, like you think of the significant events in your life and the people, you know, and the people you're friends with. And I'm sure everyone out there has some relationships that are a product of just coincidence seemingly, or are they, you know, where all these events set in motion before you're even born. It's a fun thing to think about. And it's one of the things that they talk about at Dell's. But anyway, then he gets into it. So all you, and he even acknowledges that not all of the members of their party made it out of the, uh, the uh investigation yeah whereas the only real casualty is mary that's who he's referring to but as far as all that sets up all you know is that the three of them make it out roosevelt moore and chrysler live at least till this day aside from teddy who has passed away but you know he at least makes it so you then jump into the book knowing okay i know at least these guys will make it but all these other characters i i learned and and like could be expendable yeah, Stevie and uh, um, Cyrus. Cyrus are way more fleshed out in the book. So they are part of the crew, as is Mary. And uh, the Isaacsons, they're, they're pretty good in the show. But, you know, in the book, you just don't know, like, who else could be a victim here. So it, it does leave you in some more suspense. And then the book ends, and there is a bookend uh, at the end as well, as of more uh, kind of saying, well, that was that. And uh, he, he kind of says what some of the other characters went on to do later. And I just think it would be kind of cool to see just Daniel Brühl and Luke Evans like as older guys made up to kind of bookend that a little bit. And it also leaves you know, more reflecting on like, I think the idea is that he's writing all this out. He's writing the book essentially yeah. because he is a writer <laughs> in the book. And uh, he's kind of, it's sort of his memoir, but also sort of a recap of the investigation. And he's able to kind of say like, oh, this is the real story of that investigation. Now that Theodore Roosevelt has passed away, it's time that, the real story Everyone we made public. Yes, exactly. Interesting. And uh, it's just, it's cool. And yeah. uh, it's cool to see more as an older guy looking back and uh, because you get to know him as he is here as, as ably portrayed by uh, Luke Evans. <laughs> you see him as a slightly older dude. And that would be cool. I do really love the final scene of the show. I think it's really good. Yeah. Uh, but 
I wouldn't necessarily say that Laszlo is the main character in the book. He is a main character, but it's almost more Moore's story because you're just there with him. Yeah, I think that's the thing is that even with the show, they didn't center it around John. They didn't really center it much, period. If they centered it around anyone, it was Laszlo. It's true. But it was more of an ensemble. And so because of that, I don't know. I mean, that doesn't mean that they couldn't have done those bookends in some form but yeah i think they would be cool i think it's a neat way to bring you into the world yeah but it worked without it it maybe wasn't the best but it still worked maybe they just were so horrible with teddy that they were like forget it who cares <laughs> they're all they're just so the the whole book is so well written but the 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 bookends are so richly told it really feels like you're sitting in a room with somebody conversing with you it's very conversational in the way that it's written and it it just draws you right in, and uh, it does help flesh out Teddy too because he does talk quite a bit about Roosevelt. But anyway, yeah, I, I like them. I think that it's pretty cool. The sequel also does the same thing; it bookends it again, except the sequel is told from Stevie's Stevie, perspective. Yeah, you said that, so you get to see Stevie as an adult at the beginning and the end of the book. So minor spoiler for Angel of Darkness, Stevie survives. <laughs> <laughs> but it's very interesting because you get to see Stevie when he's probably in his 30s. And I think it's around the same time that Moore writes The Alienist, so to speak, be, if not shortly after, because Moore is around the same age and Stevie is like a mid-30s guy instead of like a 15-year-old or whatever yeah. it is in the book. So it's pretty cool that you get to spend some time with Stevie at roughly the age that Moore and Laszlo were during The Alienist, which I'm always fascinated by how generations work. And, you know, the older you get as an adult, as an individual, you can start to look back on what your parents' lives must have been like when they were the age you are now, and even your grandparents and even beyond. And, like, what will your kids' lives be like? And now you have evolved into this role so although it's fun being with Moore on the journey, it's interesting seeing it from Stevie's perspective. Yeah. And uh, it's, uh, while I do, when I read The Angel of Darkness, I kind of, you kind of miss Moore's voice. It's it's interesting to see him as a character and not your narrator. Yeah. And it's weird seeing the story told from the perspective of like a teenage boy, basically. But it's it's a different kind of book. Again, it's not so unlike Terminator <laughs> because you have Kyle Reese in the first movie and then you have John Connor in the sequel. Yeah. Boy, that Terminator yeah. reference just runs right real deep. <laughs> Beautiful. Anyway, I, I highly recommend both books. If you're listening to this show still and you haven't read it, and it sounds like a surprising amount of our listeners have read the book, which is really cool. Yeah. Because growing up and even to today, I haven't really met anybody else who's read it. And I think that that's really cool. To me, it was always this like book that just like, Somebody picked my dad picked up because he thought it looked good. I mean, he buys books like the rest of us grocery shop. Yeah, it's stupid the amount of books <laughs> he has, just boxes and boxes and boxes and boxes like floor to ceiling in his basement of just like books. Well, I'm glad he did because otherwise, this podcast might not exist. Yeah, but I'm glad so many people have read it. And if you haven't and you're listening or you haven't read it in a long time, uh, go back reread it. Yeah, you know, just rediscover it and uh, everyone read the sequel. The sequel's so awesome. And uh, I'm sure you'll be pining for the show to uh, to happen, and we'll see. I'm I'm not betting on it. <laughs> Probably not, <laughs> but we'll you never it. know. Tweet at uh, tweet at FX. See, or if Caleb Carr is out there somewhere, yell into the wind, and maybe Caleb Carr <laughs> will hear it. But I think that's it. What do you think? 
I I mean I I enjoyed the experience. I enjoyed doing this podcast. I think more than I ultimately feel as though I got out of the show. You know, like it it yeah. the show's good, but having these conversations every week and and listening to what the readers have or what the listeners have to say and seeing how things were taken overall, I think it's it's certainly like. I don't, without this podcast, I don't know that I would have made it all the way through the show. And it's weird because it's almost like podcasting about it makes it more worth watching it. Yeah. But I, you know, I think that that's kind of, yeah, having, putting things to your critical eye and kind of trying to understand why you feel the way you feel about certain things about a show, I think can be a pretty re- rewarding experience. And I hope other people got that out of listening to us as well so yeah i know when there's a podcast i enjoy when i know what they're covering i will if i'm re-watching that thing or watching it for the first time i will pay more attention try yeah. to find out things they're going to call out and one thing i think that all three of our tv podcasts have in common is preacher westworld and the alienist despite its some of its shortcomings all three are shows that i find myself completely arrested by i don't often find myself wanting to look at my phone or wondering what time it is yeah. or, or wanting to miss a shot because the production value on all three is so good and that's one thing that we didn't talk about enough i think in the alienist in this episode anyway until it was in some of the feedback was the production value is fantastic absolutely it's very well shot and there's a lot of really well directed sequences in here that are uh, made me i would i would start it with the expectation of like sort of half paying attention and i would inevitably I end up giving it my full attention yeah you put, you put your phone down after having it in your hand and i would actually watch it on my phone a lot <laughs> which was actually like really weird i don't know why i don't watch any other shows yeah on my i phone. feel like you haven't typically done that but i would thing. just like sit with it this close to my face and just like totally <laughs> soak it up and drink I, it and, in and i would also just watch it on my ipad for the same reason that i would just have my my full attention yeah which is interesting it was a fun fun experience for sure yeah it's a lot of fun to to stay tuned in and then to talk to the uh to the community here the little the little corner of the universe that we that we got to meet yeah and i mean i'm glad if not only to like understand more from where you're coming from with it like to me it was just this book that you had read that nobody else i knew had ever heard of Yeah, yeah so to kind of be able to sit here and learn about your passion for the book has also been good and to kind of see at least some of it coming through in the show. I oh think, yeah. I think, uh, has been, has been good for me as well. So I think, uh, I sort of feel, you know, we've, we've connected with a lot of people over this show, which is really exciting. It's always, you know, this is, this sort of thing is fun to do in general, but yeah. if you don't have any sort of interaction with any community, if it, if it doesn't grow beyond two friends in a room talking while well, that is always fun, it's so much more rewarding when there's other For people sure. in on the conversation. For sure. Every time I get an email when I'm at work, I immediately, like, I drop everything and I <laughs> sit there and read it. And then I screenshot it and send it to Nick. That's funny. And and so it's it's always, it's fun. It's just great to not feel as though we're just putting it out there into the ether and then it floats away. And Yeah, I think ultimately we do this sort of thing because we like talking to people about. Yeah. We don't like just necessarily listening to ourselves. I've actually never listened to an episode of anything <laughs> we've made. Occasionally I'll listen to like a few minutes about a certain point. Yeah. And I listen to Alex's show, uh, the Midwest Game Nerds podcast, religiously because I, I know all the guys on that and I think it's a lot of fun. But, you know, we do it because we want to 
converse yeah. with people. And so in that Absolutely. regard, the show has been a, has been a rousing success. Thank you, say. everyone, for, for writing in and tweeting and however else you've gotten in contact with us. It's been good. I feel like I'm, I'm in the John Moore camp with this one, that this feels like you know circumstances beyond our control would they conspired to have us you know become friends and and me having read the book and find this format and every single interaction that we've had uh, out of it has been the result of of that uh that fate yeah and laszlo would probably go nope yeah i don't know not true <laughs> look at your bird <laughs> well i think that's it i think so too Thanks, gang. Yeah, if for some reason you want to go back and listen to the f- previous episodes of this podcast, go to thealienist.tv. Write to us, feedback at thealienist.tv if you want to chat us up about anything or if you hear some news about The Alienist and want to check in with us about it mm-hmm. or any future adaptations or anything. Uh, please go to midwestpodcastnetwork.com. Check out the rest of the shows that we do. You might find something that you like. Uh, Westworld and Gone to Texas are very much in a similar format to this show, and I think uh, Preacher and Westworld are both great TV shows that more people should be watching. Uh, so please join us along for those rides. As I said at the top of the show, if you've enjoyed this show or any other show that we've done, please go to patreon.com slash midwestpodnet. That's patreon.com slash mid. W-E-S-T-P-O-D-N-E-T and consider giving us as little as a dollar at a month or a dollar every month or a dollar for just one month. Whatever it is, it's a dollar more than we're currently making. So please consider doing that. Our theme song is the song Division by Kevin McLeod and it is being used under an Attribution Creative Commons license. That's all for this podcast called The Alienist Recap. If you find us later... If you join join this podcast late after it has aired and we have already recorded this and you start watching it and like we've got a big Netflix release for it coming up uh, yeah and internationally yeah ne- this uh, Friday yeah yeah a week from yesterday it's coming out so it's, t- it's Netflix right yeah yeah I'm pretty sure it is yeah I mean you can still write into us let us yeah know what you thought yeah no we'll we'll certainly be here I can pass emails to Nick or we can chat back and forth whatever tweet us uh, we can keep the conversation going for sure we'll always have eight oh eight oh eight Yes. 808 is the building. Yeah. There's nothing nothing stopping us. We from, will not clean off the chalkboard. Yeah. There's nothing stopping us from meeting back at the chalkboard. So thanks, everybody, for listening. And uh, hopefully we'll see you in another project.